Hello, everybody. Welcome to PSA number nine. That's Privacy, Surveillance, and Anonymity. Today, I'm here with Kalia Young, Identity Woman. It is Wednesday, June 10th, 2020. Hello, Kalia. Where are we today? Hi, Seth. I'm in Oakland, California. Where are we more broadly? Where are we? Yeah. On the spectrum. Well, we've had interesting developments this week, both from big tech and also in other realms of society, sort of thinking about issues about power and surveillance and the future of policing. But it's been a things are yeah, calmer April. than they were last week. This is true. Um Hopefully it's not the calm, calm before the storm. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of um, a lot more. You know, I don't know if it's more, but there's a lot of surveillance going on. Yes, and 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 a lot of domestic surveillance going on, and um, a lot of policing going on, a lot of protesting going on, a lot of peaceful protesting going on, and there was a lot of non-peaceful violent protesting and looting um going on as well so you know what what happens in these moments where um technology gets applied technology gets applied to um identify people um for repercussions and some of that is is i think healthy um there's been a lot of bad actors on on all sides but some of the police brutality you know, now has names and, and faces attached to it that can get um, um, accounted for. So I guess the question is, is that a good form of surveillance or is that just identification? Well, I think that, uh, I think there's a few things going on. One is police, <clears throat> whose job it is to serve the public, um, are supposed to keep um, keep their name and their officer number visible, right? In part because they have a job to act on behalf of the state and then they need to be accountable for those actions. So one of the things that was happening in some of the contexts is polices were covering their 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 badge numbers so that they couldn't be easily identified. And then um, for for negative things that they did. And then what was happening was that citizens were taking their photo and posting it and using social media to kind of collectively out who they were. I think this is, that type of activity is different than another type of surveillance that was going on, which was police, is at least this happened in Seattle, where police who were in in scuffles or interactions with protesters that they were unhappy about were using information to go show up at those protesters' houses like a week later and retaliate against them for things that had happened in those protests, right? So it's, it's a real question, I think, about who you are and what position you have um, in the situation and whether... Um, whether I, I don't know that people identifying who police are via social media is exactly surveillance, but it's actually a surveillance, right? It's it's people organizing to watch the watchers. 
Sure. I mean, I just remember, you know, there's the, um, I guess it was on Twitter, the, the clip of the, the biker in Baltimore, um, who was being really rough with, um, some protesters on the, on the bike path. And then the internet kind of found him out and he was persecuted, but, um, somebody was falsely, um, tabbed with the crime, right? And that person, I, I think there's something in New York Magazine about this that I haven't read. Um, but, um, you know, th- there are limits of this. It's sort of, it's it's the surveillance or, or group valence or social valence. Um, but, you know, in such charged times, we're, you know, it's it's just a dangerous time. Everybody has a camera. Everybody has a video camera. Everybody has access to the same social tools and databases to to look these people up. Yeah. Well, I mean, on the other hand, you have folks have used the tools to make a database of incidents of police violence towards protesters and others in these in the last several weeks, and it's gotten to over 400. I think it's heightened because people are protesting against the police, and so they're the object of the protest, not just the government in some abstract way that it, they are then responding to protect. It's actually like this dynamic where they're the institution that is being called out and they're not happy about it. So they're, some of their ranks aren't being nice to protesters, I guess. Yeah, there's just a level of um, kind of instant replay on protest now, instant replay on everything where we can deconstruct and reconstruct what actually happened after the moment and attach names and faces to it. Right. And that seems like it's happening um, more and more. And so we're, we're using these tools. We're using, you know, we're triangulating between Instagram and, um, and Twitter and, you know, looking people up in, in Google and, and Facebook. And we're um, trying to assert blame or, or innocence, you know, ourselves. Um, and so the role of journalism and, you know, reading, you know, even the, the Washington Post did a great reconstruction of what happened when um, Trump and Barr kind of cleared, you know, the area around the White House in those, whatever, seven or 10 minutes, mm-hmm. um, kind of To be clear, it was a public park where people were 100% peaceful, right? Like, sure. So, yeah. But just sort of stitching together all of these different camera angles Mm-hmm. from different citizens, from different people and saying, oh, there's there's Justice Barr. Oh, there is um, this journalist. Okay, here's this police person. Um, it feels like it's new. It's newer. I mean, I don't remember that happening with um, Arab Spring or some of these other protests along the way um, that we have this kind of perfect memory or the memory is even more perfect because we now have the time after the fact to pull together all of these different viewpoints and see, well, how how close were the protesters to the police versus what we thought? Did this car ram through the crowd or almost run through the crowd? Um, And again, I I don't know to what extent it relates literally to privacy and surveillance, but, um, you know, we've weaponized, or, you know, I don't, we have, but but these, these tools... Um, these camera tools, these editing tools, these um, you know narrative tools are are 
are weaponized. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we're all suddenly in the legal profession. We're all suddenly in the investigative journalism profession. Um, and I don't know what the consequences are, but it seems ripe for our discussion this week. Mm-hmm. Well, as you're speaking, I'm reminded of David Brin's work about um, sort of one potential path to the future is everybody's watching everybody, like transparent, radical transparency. Um, and I think what you're you're describing with that Washington Post piece is this after the fact ability to see it from so many sides is a new type of radical transparency and what unfolded. Yeah, and then what? So and then how, to what end privacy in that in that world? Um, because, you know, these new techniques and technologies that we all somehow emotionally, viscerally want, you know, we want to get the truth, right? We want to see every angle. We want to see who did what to whom, um, regardless of what the privacy policies are around that person or those group of people. Um, and there is a rush to judgment because there's a rush to understanding. Yeah. Yeah. And now, you know, further complicated by the fact that there still is a virus. It's still happening. Um, Now there's going to be, I would imagine, further analysis of, you know, given XYZ protest, who got, uh, I guess I read today that, um, you know, some of the first cases of COVID from the protests, because now it's been a couple of weeks and you're starting to see and we'll see more and more of that in the days to come. Um, you know, which police officers, which forces, which protesters have now contracted the virus. And now we have to go back and contact trace through that footage to understand, well, what kinds of protests, what kinds of um, physical configurations led to more outbreaks than other? Um, what cities? Is, it, is there going to be an outbreak in, in Minneapolis? Is there going to be an outbreak in Brooklyn? Is there going to be an outbreak in San Francisco? Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's not clear, and and no folks don't really. There hasn't been adoption of those early contact tracing applications that people are potentially envisioning, where if your phone was near another phone for a certain amount of time, they exchange keys, and you could sort of ping that network anonymously and let them know that they'd been exposed to someone. That that's not really there. So we don't have that avenue to do that. Um, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about trying to do contact tracing through footage and stuff. That seems sort of impossibly hard. But one of the things I read this week is that in Singapore, the government is moving ahead with manufacturing tokens that have chips in them that exchange Bluetooth keys. And that's the only thing they do. We have no GPS in them, nothing, so that they can manufacture them and hand them to everybody in Singapore and say, carry this this thing. If you test positive, your doctor will have the ability to tap into it and upload the keys that you've seen so those people could um, know that they might be exposed. And that's their that's their solution to the fact that only 25% of the population downloaded the app that they'd made for contact tracing. That seems reasonable. <clears throat> Little token cards. Yeah. 
And it, I think it's interesting because it, there's this mistrust, right, around the tech. I think that's what they were saying, that the, the reason they've gone with this token path is that because it's so small and because you can sort of, I mean, I guess you still have to trust the government that they haven't put other things in, but I'm sure it's auditable by folks and you understand it does this one thing well. It's mm-hmm. it's not just an add-on to your smartphone. And all the people who don't have smartphones, which I imagine includes many of the um, the foreign workers who live in really crammed dormitories, n- not all of them have smart smartphones. Um, and this gives a chance for everybody, regardless of whether they have a smartphone, to participate in the system. Mm-hmm. It's like the RSA keys, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's just like a credit card and it just it's a random number generator. Mm-hmm. Okay. That makes sense. What else have you been working on this week? I've been really focused on my class. I'm teaching in community college, a class called Computer Information Systems. And I've been... Uh, I've made the decision that every week of our class, we're going to watch a long form documentary about the computer industry. And we start out really positively with Douglas Engelbart and the mm-hmm. story of Compaq and the story of Commodore. And then it's really interesting how it shifts right around after the web gets an invented. And then as the advertising business model comes in, then it flips over and becomes pretty dark. So we're watching several documentaries that cover basically when when when, pe- when when people become products as opposed to customers, or when our attention, our attention as like particular individuals. I mean, I think the newspapers the newspapers monetized our attention. But they monetized it in giant groups, which didn't screw up democracy. (laughs) Um, Although I'm sure some media scholars can talk about ways that it was problematic in its own right. But it wasn't um, doing what it's doing now with this micro-targeting and um, hyping of... um, sort of hijacking our emotional feedback loops to click on more and more extreme content and referring us to harmful content. I just was listening to the daily, the New York times podcast where they were talking to a woman who had sort of fallen down the QAnon rabbit hole and how it was through viewing Um, videos on YouTube, including uh, speeches by Elizabeth Warren, like very not extreme material. Then YouTube recommended her a QAnon video and she went down that rabbit hole for several months and then decided it was also all um, not real. And it was just sad because she was so... um, they were also talking about sort of why people believe conspiracy theories in the way that they do on this other show I was listening today. Actually, Frontline was discussing 
their upcoming documentary about conspiracy theories and how people need to find meaning and storylines and that that's what these things do. But they're also being fed into conventional social networks and, and, and polarizing people even more. Yeah, I'm just looking for um, something I came across today about addiction and social media and sort of um, from Rene DiResta. Let me just find it here that I thought was pretty relevant. Yeah, so um, Rene DiResta, um, there's a study uh, that came out, um, I want to say, in the Yale Review, Computational Propaganda. If you make mm-hmm. a trend, you make it true. Um, and this was, uh, the quote here is, memes seem like a novelty, but the defense industry and DARPA, which created ARPANET, the forerunner of the internet, have studied them for years. A meme is information which propagates, has impact, and persists. Memes are popular. People enjoy creating and sharing them. They feel authentic and their messages resonate. DARPA researchers believe that memes can change individual and group values and behavior. They fit our information consumption infrastructure, big image, limited text, capable of being understood thoroughly with minimal effort. Person-to-person transmission and social virality tools enable them to spread easily and jump from group to group, evolving and changing as they do. They solidify cultural bonds and in-group ideological identity and turn big ideas into emotional snippets. They have sticking power and virality potential, and they now become part of the cultural zeitgeist at internet speed. Memes are the propaganda of the digital age. Mm-hmm. Thoughts? Well, I'm I I am on Twitter, but I don't think of myself as a huge meme consumer or generator. I often find out about them later, <laughs> as it were. Um, but I I think that what they're saying is true, and I've heard that there are concerns about the 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 algorithmic practices and therefore which memes spread where in America coming from TikTok as sort of the new kid on the social media block that's America's youth is really into. Um, And that on two fronts, one is when folks do a security analysis of the app, they say it's basically a social media app posing as a data extraction tool from your phone and feeding it all to the Chinese government. And that, I don't buy them. I I'm, I like TikTok more and more. I think TikTok is actually So you don't see I see then what do you this is again this realm of like what do we believe? Like is it just feeding the data to the Chinese government or is it really just well, a social I, I media? Th- I, I think TikTok is not a social app the way I see it. It's it's a it's an AI singularity. Right. It, it's basically it is um, showing me exactly what I want to click on. It's showing me exactly right. what I want to watch. Yeah. Regardless of my social network. It's not about sharing. It's about sucking me in into this sort of attention Borg 
Um, it has some aspects which I find really lovely compared to Instagram or Facebook or even Snapchat in terms of its sort of... Uh, What's lovely? Collaborate. There's a, there's a collaborative layer of people taking on these challenges and performing in order to get noticed, whether it's grabbing a piece of music or grabbing a certain number of dance moves with a hashtag. Um, there's something very choreographic about it, which I like a lot. It's more creative. It, yeah. it feels like a level playing field. It doesn't have the same filter bubble behavior that I sense from Twitter or Facebook. Um, that being said, um, you know, it, it, it does have deep ties to the Chinese government. I think they're, they're, bending over backwards, TikTok is, to try to distance itself from China by um, establishing a, a new COO or CEO. And Kevin Mayer came from Disney Plus and trying to build a sort of a standalone um, you know, US-based team so that it doesn't just seem like there's a big open backdoor to some you know, database in the sky in China. Um, so you know, but you know, there's some really good research and some good pieces on TikTok where it's basically, um, you know, it, what it decides to show. You know, you you can log, you can basically get an experience without really needing to log in, without needing to share too much information about yourself. It doesn't really care about your explicit uh, name, gender, date of birth, etc. It's not harvesting and and monetizing that kind of PII. What it's doing is just literally looking at what you, how you respond to the app, and the right. longer you look at something, or the more you click on something, or you know, depending on whose profile you check out um, as you're watching these little bits of content, um, it's you know personalizing the experience, um, you know, at warp speed, based on this AI engine. Um, that's something else I wanted to read though, um, just from Balaji. Um, so the rage pandemic. While physical viruses spread quickly, mind viruses spread even more quickly in the age of social networks and messaging apps. The real existential risk may not stem from nuclear weapons, AGI, or biowarfare. It may come from the internet itself. Um, and this is response to um, social media liberated information, but it also made instantaneous global mass hysteria possible for the first time in history. If we don't find some defense against the dynamic, I think the threat is existential. Yeah, I, I was thinking about um, the impact that the internet <clears throat> and its information sharing capabilities are having and was reminded of a talk by um, Clay Shirky where he was talking about, you know, the invention of the printing press led to like a hundred years of political destabilization in Europe, including many wars. And that he was warning us that the internet was as big a disruptive force as the book had been for that era. And that we should expect unrest and destabilization um, because of it going forward, and indeed he was—he's right, right? We're seeing that, and and the implications of the sharing of all this information and what it could mean. I mean, we're also seeing really interesting, strange things happen, like the um, Capitol Hill autonomous zone forming when the police pulled out of that neighborhood in Seattle. Yep. 
What happened? So my understanding is that the police, after many nights of protesting and tear gas, and Capitol Hill is a residential neighborhood. Um, I was there during the WTO protests and remember walking through that neighborhood. And they they gave up. They left their third precinct building thinking that when they did so, the crazy rioters would burn it down. And in fact, they didn't. They just were like, in fact, folks protected it from getting burnt down by forces who wanted to do that. And instead, they just put up barricades and said, there are no cops here and started feeding people and having movie night and hanging out. What do you think about defunding the police as a term? I think that we need to really step back and in a deeper dialogue that I think isn't that, you know, isn't, doesn't headlines don't do it justice and neither does voting, but to really ask like, how much money do we have as a city and where should it go? And should it be going to schools and social work and support for people who are struggling or should it be going into the police? And now that all the information about how much money is spent on policing compared to other things in various city budgets is coming to light, it, that's that's where I think we should look is sort of look at the numbers. It's not it's not slogans to me. Yep, I agree. It's 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 not memes. Yeah, it's think, not memes. It's all turning into memes. Right, and, and like they get weaponized it, by the right and the left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Back to anonymity. Um, <laughs> keep trying to bring us back to some kind of consistent topic here because it, it, it again, it feels like, um, you know, we've, we've lived through this a couple months ago with the pandemic as it related to privacy and anonymity for contact tracing. Um, these contact tracing apps haven't really taken off. Um, you know, I hear in, I think I was reading about how in Berlin, um, you really you 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 write your your, I think your telephone number on a piece of paper, when you go to a restaurant, and and that's how they contact trace, right? That it's really low tech, um, and yet you know it raised a lot of issues around privacy and anonymity, and we're seeing the same thing with the protests now, um, you know from a different vector, so. Again, it just feels like these themes that we've been talking about and that we're explicitly addressing, you know, by virtue of even our title PSA, um, keep bubbling up, but they're kind of, it's hard to make them tangible sometimes, you know, they're always there. They're always, you know, they're kind of like, like privacy. It's a, it's a, it's a low level foundational feeling, right? right? It's hard to point to privacy. It's hard to to deconstruct it, um, you know, um, as a thing in front of you because it dissolves in front of you because we're always known to people around us. We always have some form of identity. We're never truly private and secret. Um, and yet there's a feeling of when it's being taken away from us or when we're getting more of it. Right. When it's, and when I, it's 
I think though one of the things that is 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 true that different people in different bodies have experienced more or less surveillance over time, right? And so one of the one of the points that's being made in in the or themes of the protest is like um that the black and brown communities have been the target of surveillance and of policing practices that that are asymmetric yeah and that impact them you know in pretty significant ways um i know that in the last 10 years as i've um become friends with more and more people of color and folks in the black community, just hearing the stories of how much they and their family members have ended up interacting with the police. It's, 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 it's astounding. And it's just something that none of the white people I know experience, myself included. So I think this is the, 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 the good news is is that these communities have been raising this issue and we're as a collective society issue but listening but also that technology companies i think may finally be hearing these issues that folks are raising about how do the algorithms work how can automatic facial recognition through video through ai be really dangerous to communities of color. And this is partly, I think, why IBM just decided it's just not going to do facial recognition. And I think the term recognition is not even quite right. It's, it's, it's facial identification when people are out in public randomly. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's where the problem is. It's like, this is this big question is, are we going to lose our de facto anonymity in public or not. And unless we regulate these tools in the commercial and government sector, we will. Because the Chinese have abandoned it completely, right? Like you don't have de facto anonymity in public because they're putting up cameras everywhere and making sure they know who's where and what they're doing. And what about London? You know, with CCTV and... That's a great question, and it's. Um, I would love to know more about what they're actually hooking in on the back end in terms of facial recognition and um, automatically identifying people. I think there's a difference between having cameras that capture bad things that happen, and then the people who committed those crimes have, you know, this. You know, this is the photo of the person who did the thing. Who is it? That seems acceptable. Whereas just automatically identifying everybody walking through every CCTV camera screen seems very scary. Well, just, you know, I went and I went to join the protest on Wednesday in San Francisco last week. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'd like to believe that um, I was anonymous, you know, although I'm outing myself here, but I would like to believe that everything I said was also anonymous, right? Um, 
you know, what slogans did I say? What slogans did I not say? What signs did I hold up? What signs did I not hold up? <laughs> yeah. Um, who was I with? Who was I not with? What were they saying? Who were well, they friends with? Where else were they? I mean, all of that is now more and more germane and more and more available by virtue of these surveillance technologies. Um, so the, and I would imagine another, now in the wake, yeah, there's another technology that is that that is prevalent at these protests, which is why they're telling folks to leave their phones at home. And it's uh, stingrays or IMSI catchers. So these are devices that pose as cell phone towers so that your cell phone talks to them. And then it records what your phone number is so that the police know which phone numbers were where in the protests. Yeah. Well, I guess, I mean, the question now is while we're having this conversation, um, who is who is watching, you know, all of these protests in retrospect? You know, who is going through all the tape um, on both sides? You know, who is looking at abhorrent police behavior um, and and holding and kind of reconstructing those experiences and trying to hold people accountable. And that's an example of the Washington Post that reconstructed what happened outside the White House. But then, you know, what I worry about is what's happening, you know, behind closed doors by the police departments, by the National Guard, by the military, by the government to reconstruct, you know, who was where and who went onto which street and 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 who was holding which cell phone and who was wearing which mask and which bandana. Um, and I don't know, you know, like, like what, what department of, of Homeland, what does that all belong to? Is that roll up to, and, and who's holding them accountable for the technologies that they're using and abusing? It's all fucking complicated and troubling. And the more yeah. we talk about it, the less I understand. Yeah. I mean, I think that there is a lot of questions about what lawful intercept is and where those lines are. And there's a lot of legitimate concerns about those lines being way too um, easy to cross at this point in time by various agencies. No, and fundamentally protesting is, and you know, this is all about having your voice heard. I mean, giving George Floyd voice, which is on some level at odds with anonymity. How do you give voice anonymously with the same power that it has when you reveal your identity? I mean, it's philosophical, but it's it's pretty basic. Because I keep coming to like, you know, we're moving to an age where... Um, Maybe not this year, maybe not next year, but we're going to increasingly want to wrap ourselves anonymously. We're going to want to obfuscate our identity. We're going to want to retreat from vanity email addresses and vanity telephone numbers and start to practice um, safer technology, which which means cutting off all the connections between the world and our real identity so that we can be selective about who, you know, what we disclose to whom. And so I'm thinking about as we move into this kind of anonymized world, which will be 
better and better in terms of privacy, in terms of feeling private, but will it be less impactful when it comes to protesting, when it comes to having a voice? Um, right? It, you know, it's one thing to see, um, again, to see police brutality, but when you put a name, I mean, you know, when I was walking through the streets, it was, you know, we were chanting names. That's what people do at protests. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, right? It, it's mm-hmm. about, it is about destroying privacy of these people and, 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 and saying their names. So, right. Well, I mean, a piece of this is about humanizing those victims who were not seen as humans by the people who killed them. I guess the question is, how can you be, how can you be anonymous as a victim and have the same valence and the same power um, as as being named, as losing your privacy as a victim? Um, well, that's all- one thing that is true. You basically lose privacy once you're dead. I don't know if you knew this, but <laughs> yeah, in our legal system, um, once you're dead. I guess the question is more about sort of how, how do you, um, how can you maintain an emotional? Can you maintain an emotional relationship um, to victims and to the oppressed if um, if they are practicing? privacy and they are moving towards more uh, anonymous measures so they can't be um, taken advantage of in terms of their data I mean it's a circular argument uh, I don't think there's a there's you know there's no answer to this but I think it as, as we try to reflect what we're seeing through the technology that we need to establish self-sovereign identity to establish privacy to be constructive and thoughtful and um and proactive in terms about um maintaining anonymity um how can we also um get the empathy we need or that people need um when they are victims to oppression uh, without losing their privacy yeah that's what we got to figure out should we uh stop on that note I think we should stop on that note and see where we are next week. Okay. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much, Seth. Okay. Signing off for this edition of PSA Today, Privacy, Surveillance, Anonymity. Seth Goldstein from Spartacus here with Kalia Young, Identity Woman. Yep. Bye. See you next week.